I just want a quick poll. Uh, is there anyone in here who goes dove hunting? Like, is there anyone in here who loves to dove hunt? Just Danny? Oh, we got John. All right. Well, I got to tell you, dove hunting is really fun. Um, and I distinctly remember the first time that I went dove hunting. Um, I was with uh, my father-in-law uh, was the first person to take me dove hunting. So I didn't grow up hunting. You know, I didn't come from like a hunting type family. We didn't even go camping. We were very uh, not outdoorsy. We were indoorsy family. And uh, so my first experience dove hunting was with my father-in-law. And he took me and my brother-in-law, Ben, and one of my best friends, Devin Dunatov. And uh, at the time, he wasn't my father-in-law. He was my girlfriend's dad. And Ben was just a, a younger kid that we like to pick on a little bit. And um, we went out hunting. Um, and gosh, I was like so excited. We got in the car. We were all, I was all camoed up, you know, like full on, all, got all my camo going. Uh, we hop in the car. Uh, we are headed out there. And I'm just imagining myself. I know, like I know without a shadow of doubt, I'm going to be good at this. Like, I have watched a lot of action movies. I played some video games. When I, like, I played GoldenEye when I was younger, and I was pretty good at that. And I know that's going to translate into me being a great hunter. Um, and so I'm, like, just picturing it in my head as we, get out, as we drive out there. I'm looking out the window, watching the birds, you know, kind of watching how they fly. I'm going to be like Rambo out there, just, like, taking them down. It's going to be awesome. Well, we get to the to the spot we're going to hunt, and it's like this cornfield out in Marana, Arizona, and it, the corn's already been cut, and so uh, we get out of the car, and I'm like, yes, here we go, this is going to be awesome. We go to the trunk, you know, we throw on this vest, and I start throwing the shotgun shells in the vest, I'm like, I look pretty cool right now, like, this is pretty fun, and uh, you know, you've got all these shotgun shells, and uh, Mr. Esparza, my father-in-law, he starts to bring uh, the, the guns, the shotguns, out of the car. And before he gives them to us, he stops. And he says, boys, I want you to listen to something. Guns are not a toy. And firstly, and you know when someone starts a sentence with firstly, that there's going to be a secondly and a thirdly, sometimes a fourthly. Um, and so I knew we were in for a little bit of a speech, a little bit of a spiel here. Uh, and he's been known to give some speeches uh, pretty often. And so, you know, you could like strap in. He goes, first, first thing, you never point a gun at anything you don't want to kill. So, like, it doesn't matter if the gun is loaded. It doesn't matter if it's unloaded. It doesn't matter if the safety's on or not. You never point a gun at something you don't want to shoot. And so, you know, you always got to keep the gun barrel down or up, or, but never at anyone, never at something you don't want to shoot. And he goes, number two. You know, you have got to keep the safety on and your finger off the trigger until you're ready to shoot. And, uh, you know, you don't want to be walking around, safety off, finger off on the trigger and trip, and then all of a sudden your foot's not there anymore, right? So you finger off the trigger, safety on, and he goes, number three, third thing, you have always got to know where everyone else you're hunting with is. So there's three other guys. It's like you got to know where all three of those guys are at all times while you're hunting. Now, to be honest with you, I wasn't listening to this at all, because I was literally looking over his shoulder, just watching the birds, imagining myself out there, just, you know, knocking them down. Like, that's, that's all I could think about. Didn't pay attention at all. 
the reason I know this speech is because I've heard it like 25 more times um, since this day, because every time you bring out someone new, you've got to give this, this talk to them. And so finally, he gives us the shotguns. You know, we go out there, and much to my dismay, it's way harder to shoot a bird flying through the air than I expected. Um, it, it is not easy whatsoever. And so I was out there for probably 45 minutes, maybe an hour, and there's birds everywhere. Like, there, it's not that this is a bad spot. There's birds flying over our heads. I probably shot $40 worth of just, you know, shotgun shells into the air, just, you know, having it rain down, it didn't hit anything. I look over at Mr. Esparza and Ben, and they have like a pile in front of them, right? They've got a pile of birds, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so embarrassing. And I look over at my buddy Devin on the other side, you know, he's about 20 feet away, 25 feet away, and I notice he hasn't hit anything either. And I'm like, well, whew, at least like Devin and I are in this together, you know, beginners, getting it figured out. And then all of a sudden, Devin shoots a bird, and like you, you see it fall down, and Mr. Esparza and Ben both see it, and they're like, yeah, Devin, no shot, great shot. Now I'm panicked at this point, because I'm thinking like my very manhood is at stake here. Like, if, we, if I don't kill a bird, we're going to go home, and the, I will never let it, live it down. Like, I talked big game coming out here. And so I know that, like, I got to get a bird now. A little while later, I see a bird from way, way off coming in towards us, and I'm like, this is the one. This is the bird I'm going to shoot. And so I decided I'm going to wait just, like, a little longer this time. Maybe I've just been shooting too early before the bird gets close enough. I'm going to wait a little longer and then I'm gonna, I'm gonna shoot the bird. And so the bird comes around and I notice that it's starting to descend and I'm like, oh no, this bird, it's gonna land like right next to me, which I, I didn't know this uh, until we went out there that day, but my brother-in-law, Ben, told me, you can't just shoot a bird when it's on the ground. Like it doesn't really, it's not cool if the bird is right there to like shoot it, that's, <laughs> you know, it's not very sports meaning. And so you, like, once it lands on the ground, it's, like, kind of off limits until it takes off again. And so I know I've got to take, take this shot before the bird lands. And it's coming down, landing. I'm swinging around with my gun, following it. And I pull the trigger. And as I pull the trigger, I think, where was Devin? And as soon as I pull the trigger, I hear a scream. And I hear my, one of my best friends, Devin, yell, you shot me! And it's at that point that I thought, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in jail. And here we go. Like, this is maybe going to be the worst day of my entire life. The funny thing is, today, uh, we're in Exodus 20, and we're talking about the Ten Commandments. Now, we're going to come back to this story at the end. You're going to have to <laughs> wait to find out if I have spent the last 10 years in jail or not. Um, <laughs> But we're in Exodus 20, talking about the Ten Commandments. And the one commandment that I thought, like, I had in the bag, like, I wouldn't ever have to worry about was do not murder, right? Like, that was the one that I was like, oh, that's for sure. Like, I'm not going to kill someone, right? That's the one thing. That's the one that I was like, that's the most sure. I'm not going to do that one. Um, and here we are. Uh, and so this morning, we're, we're going to take a look at the Ten Commandments. Before we do that, I'm just going to pray for us. Lord. Thank you for your word. Thanks for your commandments, Lord. I just pray that you would open our eyes to see what you have for us this morning. That as we open your word, you would speak to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
All right. Well, um, we are going to open to Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to read through uh, the entire Ten Commandments. Before I do that, let me, let me just catch you up to where we are. Um, the Israelites are in Egypt. They're slaves in Egypt. They cry out to God. God hears their cries. He rescues them. He brings them out of this slavery through the Red Sea. He delivers his people from Egypt. And then they get into the desert. And, and that's where they start to face some trials. They start to face some hard times. They start to question God. They start to, you know, complain a lot. They, they, they start to grumble a lot. But every step of the way, God provides for them. They, they get into this battle with the Amalekites, and God delivers victory for them. And then they come to this place, this Mount Sinai, where everything began. This is where, um, this is where Moses heard from God in the burning bush at the very beginning of Exodus. In Exodus 3, God spoke to Moses through a burning bush at this mountain, at this very same mountain. And here they are at this mountain now. God has fulfilled his promises. He's brought them here. And now he's going to speak again. And uh, as we talked about last week, God has entered into this covenant with, with the people of Israel. He's made this promise, and they've promised something back. And he's going to kind of flesh out this promise here in Exodus 20 through the Ten Commandments. It says this, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's house, shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. It's interesting, um, in the Old Testament, there is over 600 laws uh, that are recorded, and here we get a picture of the first 10. And you start to ask the question, why are these laws special? Like, what makes the Ten Commandments the Ten Commandments, right? Like, out of the 600, why are, why are these ten, the, like, set apart in some way? Well, these ten laws are the first laws that are given, and they're also the only laws in, in Scripture that are spoken directly from God to the people. And so these ten laws, you can think of them kind of like the Constitution. These are the laws that every other law is, is balanced up, up against. Like these are the, the rest of the law is kind of like case law, in a sense. 
Like the, the Ten Commandments are kind of broad and they need to be worked out in different cases, different scenarios. And the rest of the laws are that case law where it's working out these Ten Commandments in different sort of situations. And so uh, just like the Constitution, every other law kind of comes from these Ten Commandments. That's where it comes from. Um, and I think, something that's interesting, I, I think there's this common belief in the church that, okay, the Old Testament, you know, the, the books of the Bible before Jesus showed up, the Old Testament, that's all about the law. And then Jesus comes, and he dies on the cross, and he's resurrected, and that changes everything, and, and now it's about grace in the New Testament. This, this idea that the Old Testament was all about the law, and the New Testament now is all about grace, right? Romans 6.14 actually says, you are not under the law, but you're under grace now. So the question then would be, why would we even look at the law? Can't we just kind of throw it out? Like, this is the old stuff from the Old Testament. We're, in the, we're living in the New Testament. You know, we're living after Jesus came. The law, we don't need this anymore. Well, I want to challenge our assumption here that the Old Testament was about the law and the New Testament is, is what's about grace. I want to challenge that assumption because I believe, and I think Scripture says that all of Scripture tells one story and that it's always been about grace. Uh, we're going to take a look at Galatians 2 in a minute. And in this verse in Galatians that we're going to read, Paul is writing, and he's actually writing to Peter, um, the Apostle Peter. And in Galatia, in, in this church uh, of, in Galatians, um, there has been these people that have infiltrated the church, these Judaizers, and what they are doing is they're telling people that there's the gospel, but then, uh, yeah, yeah, the gospel's good, you gotta you know, believe in Jesus, yeah, 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 but you gotta do this, and you gotta do that, and you gotta do this, and you gotta do that. There's all these other things that you have to add to it. You know, you gotta, have, you gotta be circumcised and you gotta eat these certain foods and you can't, they're starting to add these works, if you will, to the gospel. And Peter's starting to buy into it a little bit. He's starting to um, buy into these works uh, that these Judaizers are saying. And so Paul calls him out. And in chapter two, verse 15, he says this. This is Paul speaking to Peter. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is interesting. He doesn't say, yeah, I know it used to be this way. It used to be by works of the law people were justified, and now it's by grace. He says, no, no, no. It, it, it was never this way. By works of the law, no one is justified. He uses this word justified, which is this literal legal term. Um, you know, at, at the end of a, you know, the pronouncement from the judge at the end of a court case, you would either be guilty or you would be justified. And so he, he says, no one was ever justified by works. Uh, he says, you and I, we're Jews. We know that. We know that it's always been about grace. See, I think growing up, I, th I thought the same thing. It, the Old Testament was about the law. New Testament is about grace. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Old Death Testament does not teach that obeying the law and being a good person is what gets you to heaven. Not at all. 
The Old Testament was not about follow these rules, do this, do this, do this, do this, and then you'll get there. It's actually always been about grace. Cover to cover, this, this Bible tells a one story. It doesn't change halfway through. I want to show you that really quickly. We're just going to take like a 50,000-foot view of, of Scripture really quickly. Um, at the very beginning, God creates Adam and Eve. The first, you know, he creates Adam and Eve. He gives them the Garden of Eden. He says, be fruitful and multiply. He gives them work to do in the garden. And he says, just this one thing, don't eat from this, the fruit of this one tree in the midst of the garden. Just this one tree, don't eat from the fruit of that one tree. It's not heavy-handed. But Adam and Eve, of course, they eat from the fruit of that one tree. And it says at that point, they realize, like, their nakedness, They go and they hide from God and they try to cover up with some leaves and stuff. God shows up. And what does God do for Adam and Eve? He confronts what they've done. He talks to them. But he also covers up their nakedness with these animal skins, right? He he takes these animal skins and creates clothes for them. Now, what's interesting is to make clothes out of animal skins, what do you have to do? Like a deer doesn't hop by and say, hey, you can have my skin. No, there's a sacrifice that has to be made. There's a sacrifice made to cover up what Adam and Eve, to cover up the sin of Adam and Eve. Later on, Abraham, in the book of Genesis as well, Abraham is told that he's going to, to have to sacrifice his son Isaac. And so they, he takes his son up the mountain, and on the way, Isaac, he realizes something. He's like, we've got the wood, we've got all the stuff for this sacrifice, but, but look, where's the sacrificial lamb? And in Genesis 22, 8, uh, Abraham says to Isaac, he says, God will provide the sacrificial lamb. And it's, he's talking about something even deeper than what he's telling his son here. He says, God will provide the sacrificial lamb. And we know that they get up to the top of the mountain, and God does provide. He provides a ram in the thickets so that his son doesn't have to die, but this animal is sacrificed instead. In Leviticus, there's all these rules and guidelines, and most people like skip over Leviticus. But in Leviticus, it gives some guidelines for sacrifices, and especially around the Passover. And there's this part where the people are supposed to take a lamb on Passover and put their hands on it, and the high priest is supposed to kill the lamb. And that, the idea was that your sin is passed on to this lamb. This lamb dies so that you don't have to, reminding them of what happened in the real Passover. And Isaiah Uh, Isaiah repeats what this scripture has always been about. In Isaiah 53, 5, this is still 700 years before Jesus shows up. It says this, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. 700 years before Jesus shows up, they're talking about him. Isaiah is talking about Jesus. See, from the very beginning, there's been this sacrifice that takes care of the sin of the people. And then when John the Baptist first sees Jesus, so now we're at the New Testament, John the Baptist first sees Jesus. He's the crazy guy, you know, hair, he's eating locusts and honey. He's preparing the way for the Messiah. And in John 1, 29, he sees Jesus and he says, behold, 
the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It's like he, it, it's all coming to this point where he's realizing this is him. This is the guy we've been talking about since Adam and Eve, since the very beginning. This is the, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. I think Hebrews does a great job of, of tying this all together and making it make sense. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, he says this, that the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the, the writer of Hebrews draws our attention to this. He says, you know all those sacrifices that we've been, had to do for all this whole time? You know, since the very beginning, all these sacrifices that are talked about throughout Scripture that we're commanded to do, these are just a shadow of what was to come in Jesus. These were just an image of what was going to come in Jesus. Those in themselves did nothing. Those were just a reminder that someone was coming who would truly take care of him. In, in verse 11, he says this, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, talking about Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. He's saying, look, don't you get it? All those things, they were just pointing to, to this Jesus who was coming. Like, those things weren't taking away your sin. It was your belief in those things that transferred onto Jesus. Jesus was the one who was always taking away your sin. This is not the plan B of God. Like, God didn't say, okay, it's, you know, you follow these rules in the Old Testament. That's, that's how you get into heaven. And then, okay, that's not working. Plan B, we got Jesus. This was the plan from the very beginning. Since Adam and Eve took that fruit, even in, this, uh, in the Ten Commandments, at the very beginning, Exodus 20, verse 2, before, uh, before they, they're even given the Ten Commandments by God, God says something. He reminds them of something. Exodus 20, verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is his introduction into the Ten Commandments. He wants to remind them that, look, you guys... Are, are already saved. I've already saved you. I've already brought you out of the land. Like, I have brought you out by no work of your own, and now I'm giving you these commandments. He didn't come to the people as slaves and say, okay, here's 10 commandments. I want you to try really hard and keep these 10 commandments, and you know what? I'll be back in five years, and, and we'll see how you did, and then maybe I'll, I'll get you out of Egypt. No, no. He saves them. He brings them out, and then he gives them these commands. When Egypt is in the rear view, that's when he gives them these commands. They're already saved. See, the law was never meant to be instead of God's grace. That's what the Pharisees did. It was never meant to be that way. And therefore, we can't just throw it out and say, okay, that's Old Testament stuff. We can just kind of ignore the whole law because it was never about that in the first place. Romans 3.31 repeats this, it says, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. So, it begs the question, why did God give us the law? I think he's trying to reveal 
some things to us. The law reveals some things to us. First thing I think the law reveals is our own brokenness. The law reveals our own brokenness. See, the law is useful, but it's, it was never meant to be the healing tool. Um, my wife hurt her knee a couple months ago, uh, maybe like one month ago. I don't know how long it's been. Um, but she had to go get an MRI like this last week on her knee. And now the MRI showed us that, yes, she had torn her ACL and her meniscus. And unfortunately, the MRI did nothing to fix it, right? The, the MRI showed us there's a problem. It showed us there's a problem that needs to be dealt with, but it does nothing to actually heal the problem. The law is like that. The law shows us that we have got a problem, that we're not innocent, that we have fallen short of what God's standards are, that we're in this pickle, that we have sin, and the penalty of sin is death. That's why Romans 3.20 says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, like ratchets it up even a little bit, because the Pharisees at that point were like, yeah, I'm checking all the boxes. I'm going 10 for 10. Like, I can do this myself and, you know, making it all about these works that they had to do. Well, Jesus ratchets it up, he ratchets it up in the, the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, look, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother and sister, that's murder. Like, you, you broke the law. If you have looked at another woman lustfully, like, that's adultery. You broke the law. He wants to make sure they know, like, the, the law is there to show them they have a problem, not to justify them, not to make them feel good about themselves, but to say, look, I have a problem I can't take care of. I need a savior. The second thing I think the law reveals is God's goodness. The law, a law is an expression of the lawgiver's heart and character. See, it reveals God's character to us. Jesus, um, he summarizes the Ten Commandments uh, in Matthew 23. I don't know if you, you've seen this, but uh, the Ten Commandments can kind of be broken down into two sections. The first four commandments that we read, those were all commandments on how we love God. The next six commandments are commandments on how we love one another, right? And so when Jesus is asked what's the most important command, he says, okay, I'm going to sum up the, the Ten Commandments in two commandments. The, the, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. He summarizes the Ten Commandments when he's giving the most important command. We get to see through God's commandments, he's a loving God, that he cares about us and wants us to care about people. That's who God is. Even in uh, Leviticus 19.2, God is introducing the whole law, and he introduces it by saying, be holy, for I am holy. He says, in other words, if you want to know who I am, if you want to know what I love and what I hate, and, and you want to know my heart, become like me, obey my law. So it reveals God's character, it reveals what's important to God. Uh, third thing I think it reveals is wisdom. It reveals a wise way to live. Now, I want you to think for a second. If you were to get a Ferrari, what is something important that you should do when you get a Ferrari? You should probably take a look at the owner's manual for the Ferrari, right? If you go to the gas station and throw some diesel in that thing, like, you're going to be real upset, or maybe not. I don't even know if it takes diesel. Um, but I don't have a Ferrari. 
but right, you, you know that the people who created this thing knows how it works better than you do. Like, they're the ones that give you instruction on how to use this thing to the best of its ability. Like, the creator knows how creation is supposed to work. See, the Ten Commandments aren't a tool for bossing around slaves. It's a word to, to former slaves on how to continue living in freedom. See, the great church father, Augustine, taught that true freedom is not choice or lack of constraint, but being what you were meant to be. He says this, that humans were created in the image of God. True freedom, then, is not found in moving away from that image, but only in living it out. The closer we conform to the true image of God, Jesus Christ, the freer we become. The farther we drift from it, the more our freedom sinks, shrinks. I think... uh, too often we think of commands, all commands in Scripture, like anything even Jesus calls us to, we think of them as like these constraints that are put on us. But the truth is these commandments are meant to lead us into deeper joy and life, life that's truly life, right? When you're driving up switchbacks on like a mountain road, you don't see the guardrails and think, oh, cursed guardrails, like why are you there, right? Like you realize someone has gone to great lengths to put these things here to protect you at great expense, to protect you. You don't, you don't curse them on the way up. They're there for a purpose. They're there for a reason. God wants us to take hold of life that is truly life. You see, after I shot Devin, I immediately like just ran over there. And he's holding his neck. And like you got like that's the worst place you can be holding, right? Like I've seen the movies. That's where the jugular is. He's going to bleed out so fast. Like, all I can think is, wow, this is, this is bad. And he pulls his hand off, and I look at his neck, and I, at first I don't even see anything, and I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, right, right here, there's, that's where, I got, where he shot me. I'm like, I don't, it looks like you popped a pimple. Like, I don't know. I'm like trying to convince him that I didn't actually shoot him. And uh, who knows, there might be a BB in there to this day. He goes to this church, we could ask him. Uh, so, uh, but one thing I noticed after I shot Devin was that Sarah's dad, Mr. Esparza, wasn't giving us those rules because he was like, oh, I don't want you guys to have too much fun out here, right? He didn't give us the, the rundown, the spiel, because he wanted, he, you know, he needed his, 30, his like five minutes of attention from us. No, that wasn't the point at all. The point of him giving us this, these rules was to protect us. It was, to, it was so that we would enjoy this experience as much as possible, because shooting your friend is not a fun experience, but hunting can be a really fun experience, right? The, the rules that he set up helped me to do what I already wanted to do. Like, I already wanted to not shoot Devin, right? Like, the, he's my friend. I do not want to shoot him. The rules don't give me any motivation to not shoot Devin, but they give me a framework in which to actually do what I already want to do. This is what the law is. God has never merely been in the business of behavior modification. He wants spiritual transformation, and that doesn't happen from the outside in. It happens from the inside out. Salvation isn't the reward for obedience. Salvation is the reason for obedience. See, on the night that Jesus is betrayed, he does something interesting. Uh, Before he 
introduces communion before he institutes the Lord's Supper, he gets down on his hands and knees and he washes his disciples' feet. He washes each of their feet, showing them he loves them, that he wants to, he's serving them. And after he washes their feet, he says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And he does not say, if you obey my commands, I will love you, right? He's, he's saying, if you love me, and I have loved you first now, you will obey my commands. You see, all of our doing is only because of what he has first done for us. He then goes to prove himself by instituting the Lord's Supper, right? He takes the bread, and when he had given thanks, he breaks it, and he says, this is my body, it's going to be broken for you. Then he takes the cup in the same way after supper. He takes the cup, and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Saying, I'm going to love you all the way, all the way to death. And so when, when you drink this cup and when you eat this bread, what you're, what you're doing is you're remembering how I love you, and from that is where everything else flows. It's, it's not even about my love for him. It's about his love for me, and that's where everything flows out of. And so this morning, as we move to communion, that's what I invite us to remember, that God laid down his life for us. And so that when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. All of Scripture throughout all Old Testament is pointing to this man, Jesus. And now as we, 2,000 years later, take this cup and take this bread, we're pointing back to this very same man, the man who it's always been about. It's always been about this since the very beginning, God's grace And it's his grace that empowers us to live lives of obedience, lives uh, that are transformed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. God, we thank you that you've given us scripture, that you've given us commands, that you revealed to us our need for you, that you have revealed yourself your goodness, your character, that you have revealed just the wisdom of what it is to live with you. God, we pray that we would live this inside-out reality, that your love would change us to be people who obey. God, would you this morning transform our hearts and minds. In your name we pray. Amen. You can uh, move to the table whenever you're ready.